Thanks for coming back to the Brick and Mortar Reporter Podcast, episode number seven. Welcome to the Brick and Mortar Reporter Podcast, where we show you how to build your business brick by brick. Put on your hard hat and grab your tool belt because you are about to enter the construction zone. And now, here's your host, Christy Hostler. Hey everyone, welcome to the Brick and Mortar Reporter Podcast, episode number seven, and I have got a very special guest today. Um, our guest today is Heidi Troll. She is the owner of a really, really unique restaurant in Belton, South Carolina called Grits and Groceries. Heidi has a very, very interesting background growing up um, in some culinary uh, institutions in New Orleans that have just, uh, you know, would be name recognizable anywhere in the country, and we are so excited that we have her talent, you know, here in South Carolina in a very rural area and um, get some of the best food around. So I'm very excited to have Heidi with us today. And Heidi, um, if you can go ahead and get started, I've given just a very, very, very brief snippet about your history, but start by telling us a little bit about yourself, both personally and professionally, and um, anything you think might help us get to know you a little bit. I'm sure. Well, I grew up here in South Carolina in Sumter, um, and uh, grew up on a large farm and had a great time riding horses. Uh, not a lot of exciting, wild, interesting food there. And that's one of the reasons people say, why did you start cooking? I said, I was starving to death. <laughs> so I, I had to start cooking so I could eat better. Um, but then uh, I went away to the University of South Carolina where they suggested that I find alternative education, but I didn't quite fit in the uh, university situation. So I went to cooking school at Johnson Wales in Charleston. And from there, I kind of made a five-year apprenticeship program for myself. I picked restaurants I thought were interesting and fun and um, went went and worked for six months to a year, usually for no money, so I could learn what they had to offer and work with really great wow. chefs. Um, traveled around, uh, got to work. Um, I worked a, a summer. I had a summer in France. I spent a summer in Japan, um, a summer in Greece. So I got to see some really neat places and food uh, with cooking. It's a great way to travel. And then um, we moved to New Orleans and worked for Emma Lagasse. And um, my husband was a pastry chef there, and I cooked. And then I realized that to be able to work the same shift, I needed to have my own restaurant where I could work the same hours that Joe did. So I opened a little restaurant in New Orleans called Elizabeth's, which was in a really crummy area. So I thought, "Mm, it'll be okay. I won't have a lot of business. But in the first few years, we turned out to be one of the top ten restaurants in New Orleans in our bracket. Wow. And then at almost 40, I had a baby and decided to move back to South Carolina where we would be close to our family. And uh, it's worked out really good. And the community's been great, and we love living here. Excellent. And did you um, did you have any ties to the Belton area? I mean, for people that don't know and aren't from South Carolina, um, Belton is kind of a very rural area, it and is. Um, it's it's kind of an unusual choice for your type of business. What what well, led you there? Well, what we did when I sold my restaurant in New Orleans, we had 45 days to allocate um, where we would spend the money or take a huge capital gains loss on it. Right. So I called all of my cousins that live in South Carolina, North Carolina, who have all said, you should open a restaurant near us. And told them they each uh-huh. had two days to show us what their town had to offer and Belton went out. <laughs> so, so it's kind of like the tour the tour of the towns in the Carolinas that could uh, 
like I said, we had 40, 45 days, so we jumped in the car with our six-month-old baby and toured North and South Carolina. Wow. And saw some neat, interesting places, a lot of good offers. But everywhere we went in this area, I kept driving by the particular building that Grits and Groceries is in. It was an old country store that was housed next to it and a barn and a little pasture. And I said, you know, I think this is my place. I don't need to look at anything else. So you just kind of immediately felt a connection with that location and that right. property. And and you've um, kind of, it's, it's got a little bit of a historical um, content there, doesn't it, as yep. well? I mean, I, Anderson can you tell County, us? Anderson County says that it's the second oldest structure in Anderson County. I don't have oh, wow. that documented, but that, that's what Anderson County's historians say. Uh-huh. Um, it was the super Walmart of its day. Um, there were four. <laughs> there were three stores on this corner during its heyday, and, and then a big house across the street. And this store sold the feed, the seed, um, everything you needed except for fuel. And the store across the street did not sell food, but they sold fuel. That was kind of their compromise between uh-huh. being good neighbors. And then the little building behind our store was the first radio station in Anderson County. Oh, wow. And it turns out it wasn't really a radio station, but it was the only place with electricity. And a daughter who had a radio played it, and for 25 cents a month, they would run a line to your house, and you could listen to it through an amplifier. Oh, my goodness. I did not have any idea that anything like that, that's how they started out. You know, you think radio station, you think airwaves. (laughs) No, well, then the thing is, is you had to listen to what she wanted to listen to. Oh. So they had a pipe organ and the radio, and she would play the organ, or she would play the radio, and she would tell stories, and you got to listen to it, and you couldn't turn it off if you had it. Oh, my goodness. Who knew? That you know, that's the the version of a first monopoly, I'm sure. And yeah. at the same time, what a little enterprising, you know, young lady to be able to do that kind of thing. Because I'm sure that wasn't easy to rig up. Yeah. Well, they now, said that they said that the two boys would come on a mule to your house. One would sit backwards <laughs> and pull the wire, and they would hook it up along the fence post along the way, and then hook it oh, up wow. to the house. And it was 25 cents a month. Unbelievable. And you know, I bet you you get a lot of. Um, stories about the property and, and what used to be there from the locals right around there, don't you? We do, we do. We've had that, um, one, the main family here um, had a small family reunion type. There were eight of them that met here, and they told us a lot of stories. And one of the ladies actually wrote us a lot of the stories oh. um, that she could remember. And she had since died, so that was really nice to have. Wow. It, it's, I think, you know, the the verbal history of those things. I mean, you know, there's a, a generation that, that has those things in their head that never, sometimes never got out of the family. And so it, it is really a, a good um, connection piece to be able to kind of feel like you're at least preserving a little bit of the history right there in the, the local area. Now, Heidi, you mentioned when you were telling us about your um, transition from college to cooking school and that sort of thing. And then when you came up with this, um, five-year apprenticeship to kind of go all around the world and work at different restaurants, especially for free. Um, did you do that because you knew ultimately that you wanted to open your own restaurant? Or when did you decide, you know, I'm going to be the owner of this and I'm going to do all this myself? No, um, I actually went to cooking school because I thought there'd be no homework. And <laughs> and then, um, Or you could eat the homework, right, yeah. if there was homework. <laughs> and then, you know, and then when I then I found out I did like it and it was something that I enjoyed doing. And then I did this apprenticeship program so that I could learn. I love to learn and start new things. Yeah. I get bored easily, so it's really good for me to change and move and do a lot of different things. And then um, it was a great way to travel and meet people. I really enjoyed that part. And I actually didn't think I wanted to have my own restaurant. I thought I would 
follow in a corporate format. Mm. I worked for the Ritz Carlton, um, but I did not enjoy the corporate format. Um, so when I went to work for Emerald in New Orleans, and Joe, my husband, moved up at the same time I did and went to work for Emerald as well, um, I, I realized that if we were ever going to see each other, that one of us had to change what we did. Because what I am trained for, I do at night, and what he's trained for, he does in the daytime. Uh. And daytime restaurants aren't in typically aren't cooking the style of food I wanted to. Um, I see. So that's when I decided I rented a building in a crummy neighborhood just so I could cater out of it, and I figured I could work the same hours that he did. And it it turned out to just be a really good fit for me, and that fine dining experience and the fact that I came off of a big farm in Sumter together kind of merged into this whole new cooking style, which I call eclectic soul food. Ah, okay. So, so it's it's not like there was a real specific plan. It's just sort of you took the next step and the next step, and it led to ultimately where right. you are now. Well, I was really wow. planning on it not working and that I would be a fat, happy housewife at home and um, <laughs> Joe, Joe would support me and I would go to the beach and, you know, play bridge. But yeah, it didn't, didn't work out that way. You were too successful for your yeah. own good for that plan to work out. Yeah. So um, just briefly tell us, um, you know, most people are familiar with Emeril from, you know, seeing him on Food Food Network and um, his TV shows and that sort of thing. And working in his restaurants, what was that like? I mean, what do you, did um, you have much interaction with him? Kind of give us a little bit of an inside when we, view. When we first started working for Emerald, we did have some interaction with him by the time, my husband was with him for 10 years. By the time he left, um, he was too out of town more than he was in town. Um, uh, Emerald was very, very wonderful to work for. He hired great people, and it was a nice mix. We got the corporate stability, but it mm-hmm. was run like a small business. I see. So he hired really great people to work for him, and they all cared about what they were doing, not so much the bottom line. Um, he the benefits were amazing, which, you know, every time I have to go to the doctor, I say, why did we leave Emerald? <laughs> um, but he he was amazing to work for, um, just like he is on TV. You know, people say, oh, I mm-hmm. bet he's totally different. Well, he's not. He's just that nice of a guy. Wow. And, I, and I'm sure you probably learned a lot of critical things to what you do now. Well, I mean, did- the things that, one thing that he did that I really appreciate is he wears my T-shirt when he travels. Oh, I was in New Orleans nice. and here, and I've had both restaurants. I've had people come in and say, I saw Emerald wearing your T-shirt, so we had to find it. So that's a very nice way to promote us. Wow, that that is really a great thing. I mean, you you can't you can't get a better um, spokesperson for yeah. a restaurant, you know, than having him promote whatever, you know, wherever the restaurant is you are. He knows it's going to be quality stuff, yeah. so I think that's great. Now, what was your biggest fear um, whenever you started out to uh, sell your restaurant in, in New Orleans and move back to South Carolina? Um, obviously, it was an unknown, and you had people telling you this is what you should do, but I'm sure you had a little bit of fear other than finding a place in 45 days, you know, yeah, <laughs> that you could actually, close on and that sort of thing. Actually, when we bought this property, everybody told us we were crazy and that we would, you know, never have a business here. Um, right. And and. And these aren't things that I think about. I don't have that thought process when I do something. Uh-huh. I just do it, and I do what I like to do. And mm-hmm. if it works out, great. And if it doesn't, I move on to the next thing. Um, uh-huh. So that I didn't really have a lot of fear about it. Now that we're here and committed, my fears are: Will we? You know, how long will we stay open? 
a week right. or so is not a good thing. <laughs> so. Right, yeah. And for those of you that don't know, we are in the middle of one of the most epic uh, snowstorms we've had in a, a decade or more um, here in South Carolina, which definitely keeps people in for a couple of days. But I guess yeah. the good news is by the time you guys are able to open again, everyone will have such cabin fever and they've already eaten everything in their house and all the bread and milk is gone. So they will be ready for a good home-cooked meal that they didn't have to cook and clean up after. So they, they might be out in droves <laughs> for tomorrow. So. Now, um, have you ever had any sort of a business coach or mentor um, as you've over the years? I mean, even whenever you struck out on your own in New Orleans, did you did you get any help with that? I did. I had two very important people in New Orleans starting out because I, I had no experience at running a business at that point. Right. And I called New Orleans getting my master's degree in business because I made ah. every mistake you can make. Okay. Um, I had a bookkeeper that stole me blinds. That was a $130,000 oh, no. mistake. You know, I, oh, I over-purchased, under-purchased, over-booked, under-booked. I did everything you could do wrong um, and mm. learn from it. But when I wanted to open my restaurant in New Orleans, I went to a famous um, sandwich shop, Johnny's Po' Boy, um, mm-hmm. in New Orleans. And if anybody's been to New Orleans, they've probably been to Johnny's. And mm-hmm. um, Mr. Johnny sat down with me um, once a week for about an hour to two hours first couple of months I was open, I met him. After I'd closed down, I'd come and meet with him, and we'd talk about what had happened, and he would give me direction, and he was a very good listener, and I thought it was amazing that here's someone that has a successful business taking their time out to sit down with me and and really um, help me through it. And then... How did... I was good. Uh, um, go ahead. I'm sorry. So then the other person that was really um, a great help was I had, in New Orleans, had one catering customer that I did a million a year in business for. Wow. He was my only catering customer. And he was um, a lawyer, and when my bookkeeper stole me blind, he came in and said, okay, we're not just going to fix this, but you're going to learn how to look and what to Ah. do. So he found the best CPA, and he made arrangements for me to go to that CPA every day after work with my bookkeeping. Wow. And, you know, same thing with... I learned how to do press. I learned how to use free press. I learned how to network. I learned a lot from him, and he was very open at introducing me to the people that would teach me and show me how to do things. Um, you know, that's that is so good. And he and he started out as a customer. Yes, a loyal customer. Wow. And Never I, know. I, I still just I call him. You know, anytime I don't understand, he was a political lawyer, so. Um, Anytime I don't understand what's going on in politics, I call him and say, give me the five-cent version on this. I need to know what right. what President Obama's really saying. I need to know what my uh-huh. governor's saying. And uh, so we still are in contact and good friends. But he was really, you know, took a lot of time and um, got the, got me connected to the right people so that I could do, do business. And let me ask you this. Whenever you um, had Johnny um, be a mentor to you, did did you actually go seek him out? Did you go and say, hey, could, would you mind helping me out with this? Or how did that relationship form? I did. Like, when I worked for Emerald, his, uh, Johnny's Cowboy is across the street, so I ate breakfast there a lot. And okay. we kind of became, you know, three-sentence friends. You know, we spoke. Uh-huh. Um, I told him where I was from. You know, we had short three-sentence conversations. And then when I started thinking about opening my own business, I said, would you be willing to sit down and talk to me? And he said, mm. of course. And uh, and you know then he just made himself available anytime I needed. 
Wow. You know, I I think sometimes people hesitate to ask for help or they're afraid that the people that they want to help are actually too busy or might reject helping them. And it sounds like, you know, it sounds like, like anything else, most people that have been successful in business, if somebody reaches out to them with reasonable expectations, I mean, you can't just say, Johnny, I'm opening a restaurant and can you do it for me? (laughs) But, you know, helping you through those steps is something that I think so many business owners would be willing to do to help new people get started in business if we just reach out and ask. And I think that's, that's a critical thing. And, and you know, there's there's things that you can learn from other people's experience where you don't actually have to go through it all on your own, you know. Well, <laughs> well, you can make your fair share. Way. We try to be that way here when people ask us. Um, I have a friend that has a restaurant, and when people ask her, she shut them down. She says, well, I don't want them to copy me. And right. I, feel, I feel just the opposite, and I feel like it's a compliment if someone wants to know what you're doing. And, you know, if someone wants to open a restaurant just like mine, I say, Go ahead. Right. Well, make sure I get in on all the press of it. Exactly. Well, the other thing is, though, I think so many people don't look at um, people as competitors, but they look at them more as collaborators, you know, and and kind of two people on the same mission. You know, I know you, you do a lot of, you know, try to do local food and organic food and even try to grow a lot of your own food. And, um, you know, every everyone else that wants to do that is just one more member of the tribe. You know, well, so I think that's New a Orleans, great point. In New Orleans, our, the restaurants are a very tight-knit group, and they're very helpful. Here, it's a little harder to build that network. It's starting to kind of get a network now for us because we've been here for mm-hmm. eight years. Mm-hmm. But here, our problem is there are not very many locally owned restaurants. That's so, true. You know, Finnegan's and Applebee's is not willing to be part of our little group. But right. Well, and even some of harder. the, you know, yeah, some of the, I was going to say, I think some of the the restaurants like yourself, the you know, independent ones that aren't owned by a restaurant group or those types of things that are really kind of taking the farm to table movement mm-hmm. and, you know, putting it in front of people. I think there is a definitely a core um, starting all across the country in different communities of those type of restaurants. And, and that's, that's refreshing, you know, because you don't, don't always want to go and realize that the mozzarella sticks at every restaurant come from the same food service company. You know, it's not really great cooking whenever that happens. So now as far as mentors go, um, I know that's been a huge resource with helping you in your um, business. Are there any other resources or organizations? You know, I think especially the, what you did whenever you came to South Carolina and really kind of plopped a restaurant in the middle of nowhere, um, as most people would say, um, you Actually, probably... We like, we like to think of it as the center of the universe. The center of everywhere. Yeah, uh-huh. exactly. The center of the universe. Um, but what other resources have you found helpful as you've, you know, gone through the reopening business here in South Carolina? Well, one of um, the biggest things that a restaurant needs is a good staff. And I was really worried about being able to find qualified restaurant workers, not just right. people that work in a restaurant, but people that do it for a living, uh-huh. which is what we are looking for, not college students that are passing through. Or, right. Um, and I was really worried about the resources of a staff, um, but mm-hmm. we've been very lucky here. We have a core staff that's been with us since the day we opened, and they understand what we're doing, and they're here, you know, they're lifers, they're here as long as it's productive, wow. and um, that, that's the biggest resource that we needed. Um, uh. And then on top of that, we've built, it took us a couple of years to build relationships with the farmers. Because uh-huh. when we started, we could get peppers, tomatoes, you know, and onions and cucumbers. So it was really hard for people to understand that we needed 
him to grow more things for us and that we need right. cases of it, not a dozen. Right, um, right, right. So now we have a little network of farmers that we um, try to buy everything from that we can and promote them mm-hmm. as much as possible. Um, so that's been a great resource. You know, in New Orleans, we didn't have that because there's just not a lot of place to grow local. Right. So the things that we did came in from Mississippi, so we didn't actually get to go out and meet the farmers. But here, we would ride the horse by their house and oh, wow. tell them what we're going to want next week. Well, and have you actually been able to get some farmers to actually start growing different types of crops that they would normally have grown because you have a need for it? We have. And what we do is we have several farmers that we work with, and if we ask them to plant something specific for us, we commit to buying it all. Now, we okay. may not use it all, and we may end up giving some of it away, but I feel like if they're willing to grow it for us, then we're committed to buying it all. Um, one Great. of the things and that we make is a Jerusalem artichoke pickle. That was my granddaddy's mm-hmm. recipe, and it's really hard to find them, and they need to be really fresh when you make the pickles. Um, oh. So I, I have two or three people growing them for me, and last year we had a surplus, and we ended up feeding half of them to the goats, but... You know, like I said, I've committed to buying them, so at least the goats right. are happy, and we have well, pickles. <laughs> exactly. Well, and I guess you know now, you know for next year and the years after, what your what your demand will be, and you can just gradually increase that and find other uses for them. Yeah. Because I know that's not you know generally a crop that you would see grown very often around here. So that's neat that you could get them to go ahead and do that. Now, we don't necessarily like to focus on the negative, but um, you mentioned that you've you've made every mistake in the book, but um, what are some uh, failures that you might have had along the way that maybe other business owners could learn from? The most important thing is to have a good bookkeeper. Um, ah. I don't feel like doing books is something that you can do yourself when you're mm-hmm. running a small business. You need, you need that good person. Um, I said we pay 17 different taxes. And the, oh, time, wow. the time that it takes me to fill out all those, all that paperwork and track mm-hmm. that and keep up with it, I, I lose a day for the sale. Wow. So, um, like I said, a bookkeeper in New Orleans that sold me blind. So it was really, so here, you know, I, first thing I want is a really good bookkeeper. Right. And, um, and we, we use a CPA firm that has a bookkeeper assigned to us um, that we can have a dialogue with and work with. And that makes a huge difference at the end of the year. So really, you're able to kind of outsource the things that you, that you realize are most important in your business that need to be handled by some by someone that specializes in that. Right. At right. the same time, having enough knowledge and checks and balances for yourself to feel comfortable that you're not going to have the same situation again. Right. Well, that, and that's where my friend made me learn. He said it's important that you learn how to look over it and learn what to check for, um, and then. Uh, he always said, "Hire the best, and you'll never be dissatisfied." So I found wow. the best, you know, best bookkeeper we can use, and pay what it costs. Don't. That's not a place you save money. Yeah, that's true. And I was going to say, and, and your time is probably better spent dealing with what you're the best at, which is making the great food and figuring out new recipes and mm-hmm. other ways to serve your customers. So that that is a good um, tip. That don't you know for things that are going to be a waste of time and not just that, but sometimes a thorn in your side. If you're not particularly suited for all the accounting functions, it's right. best and a better use of time to let somebody that does that um, yeah. be the specialist in that. So. 
Um, let me ask you this. Um, we've talked about a little bit of, you know, your experience in growing uh, some of your own food and having local organic and um, using some of the local farmers. But what is the biggest obstacle that you run into as a restaurant owner with trying to provide local food? Um, our biggest obstacle is volume. It's really hard for us to get enough volume and variety. Um, mm. We've kind of fixed that now because we have, you know, eight years. We've built relationships and I think at first people said they're not really going to use 200 bell peppers. We really would use 200 bell peppers. <laughs> but, you know, they bring us a dozen, and we're like, hey, just go back and pick some more. Yeah, um, exactly. That'll get us through the first 10 minutes of dinner service, right? <laughs> the other problem that we had when we first moved here is with the government and local food. Um, when we first mm. moved here, it was against DHEC rules to go out in your yard, pick a tomato, and slice it and use it. Oh, wow. It had to come from a USDA inspector's farm. And in the eight years that we've been here, they have changed a lot of the food handling rules. And, um, like, we raise a pig that we would donate to someone because we can't use it in our restaurant because we're not USDA uh-huh. inspected. But we make the right amount of waste for one pig. So we, oh. every three months we raise a pig, and then we would donate it to someone. Whereas wow. if we could do that in the restaurant, I'd be really happy. Um, would, yeah, really. And so now we've... We worked with the government agencies. Like, we also raise our own cows. So mm, okay. we were buying from other people. Um, and then when we go through so much um, ground beef that we decided it was better to lease a pasture and raise our own cows. And we have a guy that maintains them, takes care of it, and he takes it to, to the butcher for us. So what we worked out is if it goes to a USDA-inspected facility for processing, we can use our own cow. Okay. So we can control oh. everything that that cow eats. And then what we do is we take the cow every 30 days, and we have it ground in the hamburger from head to toe. Wow. So when you eat a hamburger here, you're eating, you know, the tenderloin, the, the best, ribeye, yeah. the strip, you know, everything. So it's, and they're 90% lean, so it's a different product than what you eat in a regular restaurant. Well, and it's not something that you could get. I mean, you you probably yeah. couldn't order that, you know, from any type of distributor yeah. or anything like that. So yeah, that's each, great. Each cow, we know the cow. We know what it ate. We know how it's going to taste. Um, and it, it's fun. Uh, people say, how can you name your food? I said, I spent a lot of time with that cow. <laughs> yeah. I'm very happy well, to eat it. <laughs> well, and I think, too, though, knowing, you know, that that is part of, um, you know, part of the farm-to-table movement, the humane treatment of animals and that sort of thing, and, and making sure that they're hum- they live in a, a happy and, you know, free environment and then are raised in a way that is, you know, very relaxing to the animals and not stressed like a lot of the CFA, you know, the the, the the cattle feed lots that right. are what what industry food is right. and you know there's so many documentaries and you can watch them and it will almost make you want to become a vegan if you didn't like meat so much <laughs> anyway but um you know it, but it is it is a difference and i think there there are you know being connected to your food is a very conscious way of living and eating and i think that that is definitely something that's come to the forefront in the the past several years, a lot of documentaries and all. But let me ask you this: um, with you talked about you raising a pig and and that sort of thing, are you able to kind of come full circle with like the scraps from your restaurant go to the pig and the pig goes to, you know, someone else? I mean, are you kind of able to to utilize everything that way? We do. Um, okay. What we we also our neighbor across the street has goats, so every we have no waste. Everything. Okay. That's the only yeah. That's kind of have is the cardboard box things come in. Wow. Everything goes okay. somewhere. 
And, you know, that's, that's again, something that's, that's really important because it we is. see how much food gets tossed and thrown away and if it can be used in some way um, to then turn around and, you know, continue the cycle of life, it's a, a great accomplishment there. Okay. So, I eat lunch with my son sometimes at school, and the children throw away over 50% of the food on their tray. And that drives me crazy. <laughs> Yeah, it, it we waste so much. I mean, it really is. We're we're definitely a wasteful and consuming country. That that, and I think, you know, if we appreciated our food and and felt a connectedness to it, we wouldn't we wouldn't disregard it quite so flippantly. I think sometimes. So, now conventional business wisdom <laughs> tells us that you're. Like you said, people said you are crazy whenever you picked your spot in the center of the universe um, there to start a restaurant. But um, what have you been able to do to make the remote location work for you? Because um, it's, you know, I know you're at a crossroads in, in two highways that run through very rural areas. Um, I also know you talked about having to get good staff, and I'm sure that was an issue. But But what are you doing to make the remote location work for you? Well, I figured out with my restaurant in New Orleans, which was in the same kind of location, but in a major city where you can even get a taxi to come, that location is very important, but if you have a good product, people will come. And okay. one of the things that works for us is the people that come here want to be here. We're not a choice between 25 restaurants on Clemson Boulevard, who, which which one can you turn in right instead of having to turn right against traffic. Right. So, Which one has the less weight at the in it coming out the front door, right? <laughs> when we moved here, while we were working on the building, what we did was we went to the Anderson County Farmers Market and um, sold food so that we could meet people and get our name out, and that helped us meet the farmers and customers. And then we try to do uh, any charity work that we try to do. Number one, it has to really be a charity that we believe in, not something mm-hmm. just that we feel will bring business to us. Um, and that is our only form of advertisement. Um, we do our website, Facebook, the email out menus, and anything we can do for no cost. But when mm-hmm. we do donate something that brings us business, like I said, we try to be very conscious that it's something that we believe in. Like I'm, mm-hmm. I don't want to donate a thousand dollars worth of food to people with unmatching handbags and shoes. You know, right? It's got to be. <laughs> right. It's got to be something. You're, you're laughing, but that's a real. That's a real charity. That, oh wow! Yeah, <laughs> wow. I, I'm I'm feeling not compelled to give either. So I so, completely you know, we, understand. We try, to, we try to do things that um, are causes that mean something to us, and then in return, you know, we get good business from it. And I guess you know, like you say, it with your type of restaurant. Um, the the remote location kind of helps make it the destination, or or maybe and kind of authenticates. Um, the type of restaurant that you are with the, you know, the kind of earthy, back-to-nature type of, you know, soul food, and, and it just makes it a destination. Because you're right, people aren't, um, they're they're not just out driving to see what's for dinner that night. They would have to already know they're coming to your place in order to find you unless they just happen to get really, really lucky. So um, the other thing we do is we really good, try to have a relationship with our customers, too, you know, we we know right. them, we know them by name. We know what they like. You know, I have customers. I know they like certain things, so we'll call them or email them and say, "Hey, we've got your dish on the menu this week." Or ah, oh, that's a great idea. You know, we we, um, we had some people that are coming in from Florida to visit their son, and they're we're not going to open tonight because of the snow. And they said, 
oh, we can't believe this. We brought friends from Florida because we wanted them to have your, you know, whatever it is they mm-hmm. wanted. Uh, unfortunately, they wanted tomato pies, so we don't make them this time of year anyway. So this way, I didn't even have to tell them that. <laughs> so, oh, sorry. No. Oh, wow. Well, you know, um, I was going to say, you probably end up with a lot of local repeat business, and those people are probably so thrilled that they have a restaurant of your caliber, you know, right out there that they want to patronize you rather than going down to the local chain restaurant on, you know, the main main drag there. So um, I can... What's funny is our immediate neighbors don't. Our immediate neighbors want to go to Anderson and Greenville. They come really? here. They come here once or twice a year. Our main customer base comes from a fifty-mile radius. That's amazing because they know it'll be worth the drive, and it's the again the destination. So, now, how do you work with your husband? Mm-hmm. And um, I think many small business owners somehow end up either working with spouses or children, um, sometimes even parents in their businesses. And um, what advice or what tips do you have that might help them successfully navigate those personal relationships that also have to be business relationships? Well, what works for us is we have a 50-50 split. I run the business and he owns the building. Okay. So, well, And what works for us is um, I am very bossy and my husband is not. He's very happy <laughs> for me to be the bossy one. And, uh, <laughs> okay. It, it works for us. I wouldn't recommend it for a lot of people. I wouldn't hire a husband and wife team because there's just too many uh-huh. things. We try to never argue in front of our employees right. about anything that's not work-related. Um, he's he's the key because he's very laid back and I'm very intense, so it balances mm-hmm. it out. Um, but the way we the way it works for us is there can only be one boss in a business, so I am the boss. Mm-hmm. And I said he's the landowner, so if something doesn't work out, he can threaten to put me on my building. <laughs> That's right. He'll be, be increasing your rent or yeah. something like that. So. Yeah. Wait, <laughs> now, I haven't but, been paying him rent, but don't give him any ideas. Uh-oh, we don't, we don't want to mention it. We didn't talk yeah. about that. That would be illegal, I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> um, but Now, let me ask you this. He also, you mentioned he's a, a pastry chef uh-huh. or desserts chef. and that sort of thing. So um, I know that um, with your time in New Orleans, you guys had kind of opposite uh, schedules. Do you all work at the same time right now? Now we do. And um, we have a little boy, which is why we decided to move. Um, and this, we try to work the school schedule. So we work Tuesday through okay. Saturday um, for breakfast and lunch, and then we do one dinner on Thursday night, and we all work at the okay. same time. So, okay. And that way we're done so that- with work when Tom gets out of school. Excellent. So you really have kind of kind of built a restaurant that kind of supports your lifestyle, which a lot of I think that's, you know, such a a hard balance for so many restaurant owners, especially if you serve three meals and, you know, it's the early morning and the very very late nights and it's it's definitely difficult on your family. So, um well, that people, seems people that look at our books say, you know, you could make a lot more money if you did this or you did that. That's a no. That the money doesn't matter to me. What matters to me is that we take our son to school, we pick him up from school, and then we're with him the rest of the day. Because you know, it's not you don't have much time of that before he right. realizes that we're strange aliens from another planet. Doesn't want to time <laughs> and doesn't want to be <laughs> exactly. There's that small window of time yeah. where he's not embarrassed to be seen with you. So, so he doesn't like us anymore. We'll probably change our hours some, but you'll be now, you'll be opening for dinner. <laughs> yeah, so for now it's all about him. 
I gotcha. That, but that's, you know, that's so many parents' dreams. I think so, you know, to have a, a mom and dad that can both pick them up, both take them to school, um, and then spend all that afternoon time, especially right. once daylight savings hits yep. and you've got the longer evenings. You know, you can have a great time and really feel like it was yesterday that you were at work, yep. you know, not today. So that's that's really a great thing to do. Now, um, your unique location being so remote presents some unique marketing challenges. Um, are you doing any strategies right now that are really working to get new customers to your business, or what are you using that is your main marketing strategy? Um, well, our, our website and Facebook is phenomenal. It's amazing how much business we do from that. And like I said, since we are a destination location, the people that sign up to get emails and go to our website or people that are coming and then they pass it along to their friends. Um, we try to do six events a year that put us outside of our community. Um, uh-huh. we, we do a part of Euphoria. We'll um, do a food show in Columbia. You know, we try to go different places. We try to set up six mm-hmm. events a year. And this year we have wow. that new cookbook coming out, so we'll be out with our cookbook and, and some food Excellent. shows. And that exposes people to us. Um, and I have found, um, and this is one of the things I learned in New Orleans, and don't take it personally, but writers are lazy, so I'll write a story, and I'll ship it out, mail it out to all the publications, and it's amazing how we get picked up. And basically, a writer takes my story and changes it a little, and they don't have to do a lot of work. All the research is done. I send a disc with the pictures and the format and the story, and so they just have to add their piece to it. And we get, wow. we get a lot of press that way. It works good for us. You know, that is so interesting to have that. I, I don't want to say it's a secret or whatever, but I don't know that a lot of restaurant owners actually do that. Yeah. You know, I mean, maybe it's... We don't wait for them to come to us. We go find them. And yeah, and that's a great... Idea. Well, and you know, that's the whole thing is that if you're um, proactive with that kind of stuff and you've already got it essentially done and ready to go, you know, you're kind of throwing a reporter or a writer a bone with, um, with that kind of thing. And so that's a great, that's a great tip for anyone. And I think that would work not only in the restaurant business, but it would also translate into other businesses as well. Well, especially with print going away, print publications dwindling, they don't have the staff for it anymore. They don't have the staff to send somebody out here and take pictures and do do an interview. So I try to get as much information together, uh, you know, a, a dozen pictures, hoping, you know, that they have what they need and to make right. it easier for them to run. Now, did you did you learn that from somebody? I mean, or is that just something you just came up with and figured out on your own? Um, I just kind of figured that out on my own. That's amazing because a lot of people wouldn't have, I mean, you'd think, well, I don't really know what I'm supposed to do. Or, you know, like there's some sort of magic formula that you have to fit into. Well, my, my restaurant uh, in New Orleans I opened with a $5,000 investment, so I had to be very creative. And by that, I meant about the uh, tables, the chairs, the cups, the glasses with a $5,000 wow. investment. So to be very creative and find ways for people to do stories about us that didn't cost me any money. Right, and that that's really whenever you get resourceful like that, sometimes you you come across the best tricks, and those those are things that you can share with other people. And you know, there's there's uh, no harm in other people doing that. I mean, the the very worst thing that could happen is 
that you reach out to, you know, 10 or 20 different people with the same information and you get rejected, yeah. you know, so what? Somebody, you know, out of that, somebody might not reject you. So there's nothing wrong with taking those chances. Now, Heidi, as you look at your business right now, um, what type of metrics or performance indicators do you look at to um, measure the health of your business and, and why do you feel like those are important? You know, I thought about this question when I saw it in writing, and um, in today's economy, we measure success by being open. You know, okay. 10 years ago, I would have had a different answer. 10 years uh-huh. ago, we were looking for growth and um, savings and uh, all the different things that we could do, and in today's economy, we feel like we're very successful by the fact that we're open. Um, and been around a while. Yeah, yeah uh, when we moved here... Um, the economy was booming. Two years into being here, the economy went away. And the mm. economy here really went away because most of the people here are contractors, builders, um, craftsmen, and mm-hmm. they quit working or went down to working three days a week. So um, we, we took a huge hit in our business, and we kept our hours the same, kind of hoping they would come back, and they didn't. So We've had here for two years without making any money, so then we shifted our hours and changed a little bit. Um, that's when we added Thursday night dinner. But mm. so in today's economy, I measure a small business success in that we are living a living wage, that we um, our child goes to a public school that we enjoy, and that we can open tomorrow. Mm-hmm. When the economy well, comes back, the- I hope we can judge that a different way. Right. Well, and I was going to say, though, too, um, your priorities might be different mm-hmm. than, you know, like you said, you know, people say, oh, well, you could always make more money if you had, you know, dinner service every night or this, that and the other. And then then you ha- that's whenever you draw the line and say, no, this yeah. this is my lifestyle and these are the choices I'm making. So it's not really all about the money. Right. It's more can we support the lifestyle we want to have and have the family time we want to have while you have it. Yep. So um, that's that's a great thing, and I'm, I'm glad that there are people that still, you know, will draw a line in the sand when it comes to the almighty dollar and saying all money's not good money if it puts my family time in jeopardy. So that's a great thing. Now, we always hear that hindsight is twenty twenty, and sometimes it is, and, we you know, we never see it ahead of time. But looking back on your experience owning restaurants and that sort of thing, what do you think the main overarching lesson that you've learned through the process is? The main things I've learned is um, know what you want to do and stick to it. I see too many people floundering because other people mm-hmm. tell them what they should be doing. Um, uh, I, I think if you have a concept and you believe in it, you should stick to it, not... When we first moved here, everyone said, you have to hot dogs on your menu. Man, you need hot dogs. you got to have hot dogs. <laughs> I said, I don't want to have hot dogs. <laughs> yeah, but you could have a great, you could have people lined out the door if you had two hot dogs and a Coca-Cola for $2. I was like, what if oh, I stay open? So, you know, I, I think that having the concept that you believe in and sticking with it is one of the most important things. And the other thing is hiring really good people from the beginning. Mm-hmm. A lot of people try to save money by having their cousin's brother, sister work. And right. if you don't have the right people at the beginning, you, you really lose that momentum. Right. Well, you know, the interesting thing is you're you're not the first business owner that I've interviewed that's talked about sticking with your core focus 
and, you know, how customers will sometimes think they're being helpful by saying, oh, you should do this or you should do that. And I think sometimes those are maybe more just conversation pieces, um, you know, or conversation things, because honestly, you know, it's your money and your resources that go into it. And many times if you did that, there would be no return on the investment anyway, and because they wouldn't even buy what they just suggested right. that you go out on a limb and do. Well, and so I think so that is a really hot dogs. good. You can stop at any gas station between your house and here and get two hot dogs and a Coke for $2. That's what you should do. Absolutely. And I will tell you, I would not drive all the way to Belton to get two <laughs> hot dogs and a Coke. So, right. But I would probably drive out there to get some of your food, knowing that, uh, you know, knowing what I know about the way you look at quality and what you try to do. And so, yeah, you're right. Sticking with the, the main thing that you want to do. And, you know, when you do that and you do it well, then you have a different proposition than a lot of other businesses that are kind of trying different things to see what sticks. So I think that's a really, really good piece of advice. Um, we like to try to every every interview that we do, um, you know, we probably have some listeners out there that are what we call entrepreneurs. They're looking for their niche. They're looking for what would be a great idea for me to open a local business because I want to go in business for myself. And so we like to try to talk to business owners that are already doing this and say, what holes do you see in your market? You know, what are some services or products that you would love to be able to find locally within your community, but you don't have them, so you're having to go elsewhere. Have you found anything in you know in particular that you can't find locally that you would love it if someone would provide? Well, the biggest problem I see in our area is actual the service. I do not see a lot of people dedicated to serving their public, no matter what their business is. It seems mm. to be um, a second secondary problem for them as service. You know, when I to go somewhere and I'm spending my hard-earned money, I would like your undivided attention and really good service. If mm-hmm. I go to the grocery store and the checkout girl is texting in her apron pocket, I don't go back to that store. It infuriates me. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and I know that my dollars don't, don't make and break a store, but I, I, mm-hmm. I won't go back if I'm not happy with the service. Um, so I think in our area... The niche that's missing is a really any kind of business with a really good service, whether it be um, you know, we we we're lucky here because we have contractors that eat here. But uh-huh. a lot of my friends call me and they say I have a friend who um, moved here from Greenville and she needed some small handyman work done and she'd been through three people who hadn't shown up. And yeah. I, I said I will send someone there, and I sent my best guy, who's a good customer, who does has good service, and she was very happy. Now she's dedicated to him. If she needs anything, that's her first call. You know, it's it is so interesting to me because I see this in the in the business I work in as well. It doesn't matter whether it's the computer repair people, the telephone people, even getting someone to come out and grind a stump in your yard. Yeah. It is so hard to actually make a phone call. And get somebody, number one, to answer the phone so you don't have to leave a voicemail. And number two, to actually schedule an appointment and show up and exceed your expectations. You know, and I always, I'm the same way. I think, man, if you had that skill and knew how to do it, all you would have to do is provide excellent service and you would be rolling in repeat customers and word of mouth referrals. Because I, I feel like the same thing. It's not necessarily what the product is. It's exceeding the expectations, and I hate to say it, but we have gotten so used to bad service. 
poor service. It's terrible. I mean, I think that's, you know, that is part of what is the value proposition between a local company or local business and some of the big chain stores. You know, whenever you're able to see your customers day after day and week after week and month after month and build a relationship with them, you have got something that a big box or a chain store or chain restaurant will never have, number one, just because they can't keep staff for that long, much less to have the staff care and actually work on building those relationships and and making those that loyal tribe or raving fans, whatever you want to call it. But that is such an important piece. And, you know, I hate that we're in a situation where there is really no such thing as customer service anymore. It's not really even service. It's just so marginal and so um, it's so lacking in so many ways. So well, we, I think we try to make our business point. count for that. We don't shop at any of the big box stores. We have small, we have local. Our goal is 80% within 100 miles. So, I mean, of course, we can't buy plastic, awesome. plastic wrap from anybody right. local, but we do try to buy from we try to buy things that aren't local from local people so at least our tax dollars right. stay in the zip code Right. And, you know, I think that's an important thing because, you know, we realize that there are certain products that, you know, you're you're never going to be able to probably buy any software for your computer from the guy next door that just happened to build it. You know, we, we understand that there's a certain amount of um, corporate influence that's going to infiltrate our lives and our business. But when you can set a goal and say, when I have the choice or everything that I can possibly get from right here, I'm getting from right here. That is that is such – and that's that's what we're all about here. We're all about trying to promote localism and making it um, just an awareness thing where we realize that we're putting – we're putting our own communities in jeopardy sometimes by the way we make our choices with our dollars. So well, I, I think that's a very noble point. I actually go one step further. I make sure they're actually paying taxes, sales tax, or a tax oh. in their community, because a lot of the big box stores make deals when they come into cities where they're not paying a tax, Ooh, and absolutely. I, and, um, in our community, we have a big box store, so I won't let my employees pick up anything for the restaurant that comes from there, because they're not paying that. taxes, and I'm paying a lot of taxes. Right, right, yeah, what, 17, do you say 17 different 17 taxes different that you're paying? Taxes. Well, by the time yeah, pay and everybody. you know, wow, and I know that so much of um, you know, it, it, the lure of, of the tax uh, breaks for the big corporations are kind of a kind of something that I think every local business feels that they're at a disadvantage for um, simply because they don't get that to employ their 10 or 15 or right. 20 people that they're going to employ. Um, but I think if, if businesses and, and governments got behind the small local companies like you're talking about, that you're paying taxes there and you're doing, they would see such a, you know, so much more of a benefit and so much more economic growth that it would absolutely make sense for them to do things to promote local and stimulate local businesses like, you know, like you're talking about. Because it is true that so, whether it's property tax relief or sales tax relief or, you know, other types of deals, there are many, many, many bones being thrown to the big corporations, which then automatically put the local business owners at a disadvantage. And you're the underdog no matter what. So I think that's a great, a great um, threshold for your standards as far as that goes. So that's a great thing. So, as you look at grits and groceries, what do you think the next step for your business is? Well, what we're working on right now is um, developing a product line of grits and groceries favorites to go with our mm-hmm. new cookbook that should be out at the end of March. Um, jellies, jams, seasoning, um, things that 
that are made in Anderson County that we can represent wow. and sell along with our own things and sell a, wow. get that out in the market. We have um, Charlton Cooks in Greenville has picked up um, the things that we make that are labeled for sale. So our goal for this year is to build that labeled product into items that we can sell in, in our state and move. What we need to do is we have a lull in January and July, so we're hoping this product line balances out that lull in January and July and that all of our employees could keep a 40-hour work week and um, we can do a little growth there. And is that something that you would potentially also sell through your online? I mean, through your website online. Yeah. We have a few things okay. on there now, but it's very expensive. The bottling and labeling, the labeling process mm-hmm. is just hard. <laughs> it has mm-hmm. to go through USA inspection. The label, not the product, but the label. So <laughs> that doesn't make any sense. I don't care what you put in the jar as long as the label is right. <laughs> so we're That's going funny. through that. So we try to do one wow. label a month, and our goal is to have eight, twelve products ready to sell. This year. Okay, so essentially, if somebody wanted to get a hold of your stuff, they could keep checking your website right, for updates on that kind of stuff. Yep, great, great. And what? And what I'll do is I'm going to link up in our show notes all of your um, the ways to contact you. So we'll definitely put that out there for you as well. Um, what's your favorite tool for the day to day running of your business? Is there a specific uh, go to tool that you use for that? I tell you, my customers are my favorite tool, and I hate to call them tools. Oh, They're not okay. tools, but it's one of the things that's fabulous. <laughs> Resources, right? Yeah, it's one of the things that's fabulous about this business, and we have an open kitchen. So if you're in mm-hmm. and groceries, I am looking at you, no matter where you are okay. in the building. And the best tool is to see people's reactions, and if they know that they're happy, and they brought their friends from somewhere, or it's their anniversary, and this is where they always come for their anniversary breakfast. Or um, to me, that is the best tools you know some days I'll be really beat down and tired especially after paying the 17 taxes and then I see someone that brought their you know had their family visiting from Idaho and this was their place they had to bring them that's what makes it worth it to me that absolutely is because that I mean it's it's when you have guests in town um, we tend to want to show them the best of our city and the best of our area. And so to make that list, I mean, it's a compliment in and of itself, you know, that they put you on their short list yeah. of places to dine because you can, you know, there's a hundred other places that people could go, but whenever they choose to drive where you are for that specific thing and proudly bring in their family members who they know are going to be honest with them about about the experience, you know, that's a really risky enterprise for a family, you know, a lot of pressure on the family to make sure you make good choices there. So that is yeah. definitely an honor. Now, um, if you had to look back and give your, uh, your uh, parting piece of wisdom to somebody that, you know, if you had to say, you know what, if I had only known this before I went into business, it would have made my life so much easier. What would that one piece of advice you would give? Well, I, I usually I usually say if you, um, if you knew what it took to run a, a restaurant, you wouldn't open one. So, uh-huh. But I, I don't have that excuse <laughs> because I knew what it took to run a restaurant. Um, uh-huh. So I don't know what to say to that. I I say if you if you something you feel passionate about it, you should do it. Yeah, and you know it's it's a restaurant is one of the hardest. You have to love um, it. 
Yeah, it's. I mean, it's it's a tough environment to work in, especially whenever you're you're the owner, you're the operator, you're working in the business. When people don't show up, everything falls on you. Um, at the same time, there's crazy hours. Um, there's persnickety customers. Uh, there's there's a whole lot going into that. And at the same time, you you would have to love it in order to do it. You know, it's also. I hate to say it, but it's a high failure business. Yeah. I mean, when you look at the statistics, Four I mean, out of five you guys, fail. yeah, within what the first three years, I think, yeah, you know, and they, they used to say the first five years, but now it's the first three. Yeah, I think it, it, you know, it just is it, especially, and when you look at what you have done, um, putting it in a place that nobody would have recommended, and everyone really didn't recommend for you, yeah. but then to take it and turn it into something and say eight years later, you know, we're still going strong and we're still um, growing our business. We're doing cookbooks and we're doing products and we're doing other things. And then at the same time, having no waste and trying to support the local economy through um, who you use as vendors and service providers and that sort of thing. Um, it's quite an accomplishment because that kind of is the whole package as far as what a, you would want a local restaurant to be. So um, my hat's off to you for doing that. Now, do you have anything new? Um, we mentioned your cookbook. Um, is that something that's going to be available on your website whenever it, it comes will, out? Or? Um, we, we have sold out. We've sold 10,000 copies of the cookbook that we did when we first moved here, which is unbelievable wow. for this little restaurant. Yeah. And so I felt like everybody kind of had one. So we are finishing up and putting the pictures together for a new cookbook that we hope will go to print sometime in March. And then we'll have one okay. in April. Okay. And they'll be on our website. Um Okay. And then, like I said, everything that anything that we have for sale is on our website now that that is labeled for resale. You can come here and buy more things, but mm-hmm. it has to be labeled for resale to go on the website. I see. So again, we've got a lot of regulation going yeah. on that kind of limits that. So, um, anything else about your business that you would like um, to promote to our listeners? Because I'm sure there are um, a certain amount. I mean, the the whole thing is where you are. It is remote for people that live here. At the same time, people that would travel like the I-85 corridor um, in their travels from like Atlanta to Greenville. Um, would probably not have a very difficult time finding you, would they? No, we get a lot of people from Atlanta and Charlotte on Saturdays, but I'd like for people to come on Thursday nights because we get to see a whole different okay. um, part of us. You know, Joe and I have 25 years in fine dining, but at a uh-huh. $10 price point, there's only so much we can do. So at dinner time, right. that bumps us up to a 15 to $18 price point for an entree, and we can do something a little nicer, a little um, a little different. So we had fresh escalar in last week. Um, which I ordered oh, for wow. this week, which will not be fresh Escalar now that we've had five days of snow. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. And so every every week, is it kind of a different special menu that you guys make for that Thursday night dinner? Every every week, both of our menus, all of our menus change. We have the standard okay. core of sandwiches and burgers, um, and then we always have our shrimp and grits. Um, and then during the season, we have tomato pies. But other than that, everything changes every day. And okay. My growers call me on Monday and tell me what they're going to have, and that's when I sit down and write the menu and post it on our website. Wow. Okay, so every Monday people can get the new menu mm-hmm. from the website. Right. Okay. And then, um, great. So what what I'm going to do is we're, we're, tell me all the places we can find you on the web. I know um, are you on, you're on Facebook.com forward slash Grits and Groceries? Yes. And then okay. we also have our website, gritsandgroceries.com. Um, okay. I think – if you punch us in, we're everywhere. I, I am, okay. And, and I am not a big fan of um, Yelp and 
uh, there's another website like that because it makes people who aren't food critics become food critics. Right. So a lot right, of times right. I feel like they don't realize that their complaint, something they didn't like, is affecting seven people's jobs. Right, right. Um, yeah, and we, sometimes those review websites only allow the people that had a negative experience to be motivated like enough. Yeah. yeah. We're lucky we have a very um, good rating. We have a very good rating with all of those. So we're lucky. But I, I have read from other restaurants, and I always thought, well, that's their opinion, not a problem. Right, but yeah. And not. it's, I hate to say it, but some people... Uh, judge things so harshly, and um, and you're right. I mean, you can see a negative Yelp review and actually decide not to go to a certain restaurant just based on one or two um, disgruntled people that maybe yeah. you know and, and maybe I'm, have a skewed perspective. So. And unfortunately, those sites cater to people that have a negative experience instead of a reviewer who tells you the positive and the negative. Exactly. And exactly. And you know, I think. As a business owner, I'm sure, um, you know, constructive feedback is something or, or feedback in general is something that you're probably always open to. Right. Well, and I, um, and I do people. read them because we found out our coffee maker wasn't working because of um, comments on the web. It turns oh, out that wow. the heating element wasn't hot enough, but no one was saying anything in the restaurant. Oh, and, um, they just on the reviews. But I saw on a review, and so we checked it out, and the heating element was going bad in our coffee maker. It's been a wow. lot more simple for someone to say, you know, your coffee's not very hot. <laughs> yeah, or, yeah, it's interesting, though, because um, sometimes people, you know, I don't even know if they realize that it could be a, a mechanical problem with something like that. They probably just figure the coffee pot, you know, the coffee carafe sat off the burner too long or something like that. Mm-hmm. So it just uh, it just makes a difference. to get, You know, that's the other thing about a local business, though, when you have the owner right there coming around, you know, asking and talking mm-hmm. and what's, you know, you can get that feedback and you can get that kind of um, right there instantaneous feedback about what you're doing. So that's a great, a great thing as well. Heidi, I'm going to link up to all your um, online things um, on the show notes. And this is, again, this is going to be episode number seven. And so people can go to the brickandmortarreporter.com forward slash seven and find all of the show notes as well as the links to your website um, where we can also hopefully in April get your cookbook and then also look for some additional products that you guys are going to be selling. So um, I appreciate your time so much. I know it's been a, um, a hassle with the, the snow and all that kind of thing to try to get uh, together and talk, but I so appreciate the time you spent with us today and the, the honesty you've uh, given us as far as uh, the, the life of a restaurant owner and uh, the tips that you've given us and, and that sort of thing. And um, I just couldn't thank you enough for all that you've done to uh, make this a great interview well thanks for having us we appreciate it thanks so thanks so much and i'm definitely um going to be making a day trip out to uh, grits and groceries to make sure i get my uh something good and local that i would never make at home so uh i will definitely holler at you whenever i come in there then all righty well thank you thanks so much heidi if you've enjoyed listening to this interview today and you've enjoyed the content and the experiences that were shared here I would be so happy and so grateful if you would take the time to go into iTunes, leave us a quick review or rating. We appreciate all your feedback. We love hearing from you. We want to make this podcast the best it can be with every single episode. So hop on over to iTunes. I'll have the link listed in the show notes, and you can give us a review and or a rating, and we thank you for it. You can find all the resources mentioned in this podcast in the show notes 
at www.brickandmortarreporter.com. Thank you for listening to the Brick and Mortar Reporter Podcast, where we build businesses all day long with no permits. Remember, local businesses are the backbone of our economy. So, whenever you have the opportunity, choose local. 